One of the things that is sort of a mantra for me is that everyone will become disabled if they're lucky enough. Aging is a privilege, and if you do get the opportunity, you will likely become disabled. From The Advocate Magazine, in partnership with GLAAD, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and this is LGBTQ and a Today, I'm talking to Maria Town. Maria is the president and CEO of the American Association of People with Disabilities. That quote that you just heard is something from her interview that I can't stop thinking about. If you're lucky enough, she says, you will live long enough to become disabled. Disability looks like so many things, right? And in fact, over one third of the LGBTQ community has a disability. So if you don't have one, you absolutely have a friend or a loved one who does. And as you'll hear Maria say today, disability is not a sign of weakness. It is a sign of strength, resilience, and survival. So let's get to it. This is Maria Town. You know, preparing for this interview, I was thinking about all the different aspects of queer life. Or or should I say my queer life? Mm-hmm. Because I was specifically thinking about how not accessible they are. Yeah. And one of the biggest and most visible examples, I think, is Pride, Pride celebrations. And I'm just curious about what has been your experience with Pride. Pride is interesting. The idea of like walking in a parade is very exclusive for a lot of people. There is always, you know, bias towards being able to physically show up and watch or participate in a parade that I think, you know, our experience with coronavirus may change. I hope that various pride committees and organizations across the country are actually thinking about virtual engagement in subsequent years and how that can be a complement to in-person engagements. But there's all of the events that surround Pride typically in June that often revolve around alcohol and substance abuse in treatment is a disability. Having Pride so closely tied to alcohol companies creates a lack of access for a lot of people in our community. I've never thought about that. Is alcoholism is classified as a disability? To be specific, it's it's addiction in treatment. So if you are actively experiencing alcoholism and not seeking treatment, then it wouldn't fall into disability. You know, that's what the law says. I think that we can look at addiction more broadly as as a disability, as something that does impact someone's activities of daily living and their ability to accomplish them. You know, for someone who is seeking treatment for addiction, they are entitled to reasonable accommodations in their job. If they need a flexible work schedule so they can go to a meeting, all of those fit under the umbrella of reasonable accommodations in the ADA. It's an issue that I wish more people in the queer community understood and were open about. And you said addiction falls within the ADA, the American Disability Act, or I guess um, if you're currently in treatment. Right. I think people in the queer community know so many people in treatment. Is that a broadly known thing that you are legally able to ask your like work for time off to like, go to meetings and stuff? So I don't think it is. I think that most people's understanding of disability is fairly narrow, and that's very unfortunate. The disability community is huge. It's extremely diverse. And I think most people, when they think of disability, even people within the community, if they haven't had an opportunity to really get to know the disability rights community, maybe think about disability in terms of 
someone who uses a wheelchair or someone who is blind. But in fact, disability covers, you know, people who have cancer, people who have AIDS and HIV. It's a really, really broad category. In fact, so broad that people with disabilities are the largest minority group in the United States. And there are one billion people with disabilities around the world. Those numbers are crazy, especially since on on this podcast, we talk about representation all the time, mainly for queer people in the media. But when you think about representation for those with disabilities, the numbers are so small if, as you said, it is the largest minority group. Well, and even with representation, right, like we are so, as a community, so accustomed to seeing disabled characters being played by non-disabled actors. Like, what's the easiest way to win an Oscar? have an able-bodied person play somebody with a disability, right? Like Daniel Day-Lewis in My Left Foot, Charlize Theron in Monster, Forrest Gump, all Oscar winners, all non-disabled people playing people with disabilities. I think when we talk about representation, it can't just be like disabled characters. It needs to be disabled writers writing the stories. It needs to be production, the whole kit and caboodle. And then to narrow that down a bit more, people with disabilities within the queer and trans community, that's an even smaller pool on screen. Off the top of my head, I can only name Ryan O'Connell on special. (laughs) Well, so Niall DeMarco, I think, identifies as queer. Oh, yes, you're exactly right. I guess like one of the issues with what I said about like, we can't name people with disabilities who are in the queer community, who are on screen. Also, is like going against like the assumption that all uh, disabilities are visible. There's some big similarities between the disability experience and the LGBTQ experience in that you often have to come out and you have to own your identity. Um, And we talk a lot about disability pride in the same way we talk about LGBTQ pride. You know, you can be somebody who identifies as having a condition. And even for me, I'm somebody with a very visible disability. For a very long time, I felt like I have cerebral palsy, like I have a shirt, you know, like it's something that I, I just happened to have. It wasn't necessarily a part of who I was. And it wasn't until I was in college that someone asked me, do you identify as disabled? And I remember thinking very quickly, like, no one has ever asked me that. I remembered when I said yes, how freeing that felt. And so that's the other reason that we may not see all of the representation that's happening, because there may be many people in the media who have disabilities, but don't identify that way themselves. So in college, when you said, yes, for the first time, I have a disability, I identify as being a part of this community, what changed for you going forward in your life? I think a huge part of what changed for me is I began to seek out disability community. When you're somebody who specifically grows up with a disability, the primary message that you receive is pass. You know, I went through decades of physical therapy and occupational therapy, learning how to walk, learning how to make force my body to do something that it did not want to do so that I could be more normal. You're not encouraged to hang out with other disabled people. It's like I've worked so hard to pass. If I start hanging out with other disabled people, what's going to happen, right? 
And so when I said yes to that question, it opened a door to this community where I finally felt understood. One of the reasons I do the work that I do is because I want everybody to have that chance. I think we see so often that community within, you know, marginalized spaces can really save lives. And I think that's true for disability. Again, similar to an LGBT experience, often youth with disabilities are the only one in their families. You're like pretty isolated. And so you've got parents who are just like, how can we cure you? And you're probably not around a lot of other youth. I think social media is changing that. So social media is changing things because people in the disability community are now able to find each other much easier. Right. Yep. I just wonder, that is a change that has then happened in our lifetime. How did you find community before that? I didn't. I mean, like, I grew up in a pretty rural area of Louisiana. I was in special ed. I rode the short bus. So my access to community came in like my adaptive PE class and nowhere else. And that kind of experience with community is very specific. You know, once social media grew and there started to be groups around disability identity, that opened up a whole nother world. People with disabilities experience a lot of medical ableism just so everybody's on the same page. Ableism is the discrimination that basically says that people with particular abilities are better than those without. And so just having like a space for people to say, hey, this weird thing is happening with my hip. Has this happened to you all before? What did you do? Or I'm I'm exploring this particular medicine. Has this worked for you? Like, it, it creates spaces to have those kind of conversations. In addition to, I'm going to try to post an online like dating profile. Should my picture include my wheelchair? Should I disclose in my profile? That conversation is really dynamic. And I don't think there's a right answer just in case anyone's wondering. Yeah. And I know, I know the answer to that question of like, do you disclose in an online dating profile is personal and it's for each person. How do you answer that for yourself? Well, I have never used online dating profiles. So I wouldn't recommend it if you're asking. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Truly for me, I would disclose in a profile. For me, it would be like, let's let's weed out all those folks who are going to have problems. But I also know that disclosing would open me up to somebody being like, well, hey, like, how do you how do you do this? You know, like, can can you get into bed? We get asked questions like that a lot. We've been comparing, you know, the disability community to the queer community. I know it's an imperfect comparison, but a lot of things do line up. And one thing I was thinking about is like all of the progress that we've made as queer people. A lot of it happened because people around the world saw that there was people in their own communities who they liked and found out were queer and it didn't change things. You describing going to school, it to me seemed like they were like walling off everybody with a disability in one room. So like people didn't have the chance to like get to know Maria or anybody else. So so to be clear, I was what they call mainstreamed. So with a few exceptions, I participated in kind of a standard classroom setting. I received accommodations in that classroom um, and they're for only a few things was I in what we call a segregated setting. And I I think about this on a daily basis. I am so incredibly 
lucky. I am someone for whom the system worked and all too often the system fails. Even with the mainstreaming, someone who I knew in school might say to me, oh, but Maria, I don't see you as disabled. And when I was in school, when I was younger, I would take that as a compliment, right? And today, if somebody said that to me, I would be like, what? <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, disability is a huge part of who I am. I want you to see me as disabled. And I think, especially for young people growing up disabilities, even if their peers get a chance to know them, they are also learning disability stereotypes and ableism at the same time. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. We live in a society built for people without disabilities. Right. Even for yourself, do you catch yourself having ableist thoughts? Oh, I mean, in the disability community, we have a concept called internalized ableism, and I deal with it all the time. I'll give you a specific example. I've already mentioned, you know, how much time I spent learning how to walk and relearning how to walk. I know at 33 already, like my body has actually been damaged because I've spent so much time doing this. It would be ultimately better for me to begin using a wheelchair more often than I do. But that decision is one that I struggle with. And I know that the reason I struggle is because of internalized ableism. When I do decide to start using a wheelchair uh, more often than not, it will be a difficult conversation with my family, potentially a difficult conversation with my friends. There have been so many people who've made tough decisions like that to have their family say, like, but why would you do that when you can walk? And the answer is because when I walk, I literally have to spend time worrying about the next time I'll get to sit down. And so it would be a difficult conversation with family and friends because they would prefer you not to be in a wheelchair. Right. Well, and also because a lot of people, it's it's not just me who's gone through all of this. A lot of people are involved, um, you know, whether it's folks that have helped you go to appointments or, or you know, learn or figure out how to manage your, yourself in an, an environment. And it's not just like a wheelchair decision. There are a lot of conditions that change over time. You know, everything you're saying requires the presence of another human being. And we now live in a time of like social distance. And that's not a privilege that everyone is able to partake in. Yeah. One of the core values of the disability community is interdependence. It's this recognition that, that we are all connected and all rely on each other. One of the reasons it's a core value is because the value of independence is, a, is actually toxic. And if we're being real, it's totally false. You know, think about your day and how many things that you did today did you accomplish totally on your own? Even what we're doing right now. Someone made these headphones, someone made this recording device, and I think coronavirus is pointing this out. Um, we're all connected. You know, it's not the same thing, but I actually can't walk right now. Um, at the very beginning of the pandemic, I broke my foot, I had surgery, so I've been on crutches. Yeah. Crutches suck. It, they're the worst thing. <laughs> and I, um, I had two foot surgeries last year. So I've been on crutches like three times last nine mm -hmm. months. And it has opened my eyes so many accessibility yeah. issues. But also um, it has forced me to, what you said, rely on other people and ask for help. And I am fiercely not hardwired mm -hmm. to do any of that. It's actually, 
something that I, I wish more people would appreciate about folks with disabilities. Like, I feel like we have to, a lot of people have to learn delegation as a skill. A lot of people with disabilities are very good at it. There's a disability rights activist named Judy Human, and she'll say that independence is not being able to do things by yourself. It's having control of how they are done. That's really good. I think that's so important because even for me, I have to ask for assistance all the time. Um, And even in asking, I have to be pretty specific, right? Like if I need assistance moving through a space, it would not be okay for someone to just like grab onto me and, you know, start pulling me around. I'm going to fall. They're going to fall. It will be a scene. Perhaps someone gets hurt. And so I have to say, hey, can I hold on to your arm in this way? You know, are, are you okay if we take this path? And because you have a disability, do people feel more comfortable, like, yes. touching you, like, without you? Okay. <laughs> yes, yeah, sorry, that answer was quick. Because particularly as somebody with a, with a very apparent disability, your body becomes public space almost. It can, it can create so many issues. I can't even begin. But yeah, people feel that it is appropriate to reach out and grab me, to pat my head. One of the things that gets me a lot is I will, part of the way that I can walk into a building is to actually hold onto the door as I'm opening it. If somebody else goes to open the door for me, that just means I fall over. And then they want to help me up, which typically means that they just grab onto whatever part of me they want even if it's not helpful. And I received so much commentary about my body, um, whether or not I've asked for it. And I think it's particularly amplified because I'm a woman. Sorry, can I ask what you mean by commentary? I'll get things like this. There was one one morning where I was going to work and I was taking an Uber and I get into the Uber and the driver says, you make life look hard. Oh. Yeah. I'll just have people like walk up to me and say like, how'd you get like that? What happened? This happened recently when like right before uh, quarantine started. Um, I was just walking on the sidewalk and a woman stood right in front of me and just said, you're doing so great. (laughs) I was so taken aback, right? Like, She was cheering me on because of this, like, accomplishment. I had no idea what to do. The other thing that happens a lot is I get prayed over. I will just have people lay hands on me as I am in a public space because they want to pray for a cure. This has happened to me my entire life. Oh, pray like prayer, not like pray like a, oh, I see, I see. Right, yeah, P-R-A-Y. I have learned my response is that, you know, I believe that God made me as I am and loves me as I am. And I have had very mixed responses to that. Um, I've had somebody say, how could you know what God's will is? You may, you know, you might be the spawn of Satan. Someone recently told me that my body is the result of Satan perverting God's will in my mother's womb. Wow. Mm -hmm. Are these daily occurrences for you? So, um... No, because I've lived um, different places, living in a place like D.C. where there is, you know, fairly good and accessible pedestrian infrastructure, I was out in public more often. So I would say I got more commentary like this more often. 
when I was living in a place like Houston, Texas, where I'm in people's cars, right? I'm, I'm not, I'm like literally not walking about as much. I didn't get as much commentary, but I still definitely deal with it a lot. And I think a lot of people with disabilities have similar experiences. One thing I had a question about with like me being on crutches, mm-hmm. it has made me feel a bit guilty that it's having taken these health issues to like expand my empathy, to open my eyes to accessibility issues. And I just wonder, how do you teach empathy without people having these types of health problems? One, I'm re- I'm sorry about what's happened to your foot. And I, I oh. do think cr- crutches are the worst. Thank you, um, but it's fine. <laughs> so there's a lot of ways that you can teach empathy. And I think... It depends on, you know, who you're you're speaking with. Because the disability is so large, everybody, if they are not disabled themselves, everyone knows someone with a disability. Whether it is your grandmother who maybe she doesn't identify as disabled, but she says things like, I just can't hear as well as I used to. Or, you know, it's your cousin um, who had leukemia. Think about the people who you hold dear, what they experience on a daily basis. One of the things that is sort of a mantra for me is that everyone will become disabled if they're lucky enough. Aging is a privilege. Far too few of us get the opportunity to live to be a ripe old age. And if you do get the opportunity, you will likely become disabled. There is a phrase in the disability community called temporarily able-bodied. So for somebody who's able-bodied, we might call them a tab. Um, And for me, disability is not necessarily a sign of weakness or a sign of a lack of competence. It is instead a sign of survival and resilience and strength. When I talk about disability pride, like, There are so many things that frustrate me on a daily basis. It takes me maybe 20 minutes on a good day to put on shoes. And I want to yell at my feet on a regular basis. But being frustrated and having those moments or having a moment where I like fall and like doubt my ability to live on my own, that's just a moment where I get to practice my pride. And I think that all of us have moments where we recognize our own mortality and our own humanity. And we try really hard not to get mad at ourselves and instead say, I'm going to keep going. And that's very much what my disability experience has been like. I think that's amazing. And, you know, for people listening, you are the president and CEO of AAPD. American Association for People with Disabilities. You've had that job for about a year now. What has that first year been like for you? Um, It's been a lot. And it's the American Association of People with Disabilities, which is important. Um, It's of of and not for, right? Oh. So it's a disability-led organization. Um, We are a civil rights organization, which is also important. The first year um, has, has been a real journey for me. Um, my background is actually in government and in public service. I spent 10 years in various government jobs before coming to this nonprofit. And I think it's been a real shift. You know, I'm used to being 
the person who's working with advocates like me saying like, okay, how do we get this policy to where you want it to be? And now I'm the person saying like, you need to do your job and, and get this policy right, for example. And it's, it's a big shift. This year in particular, 2020 is such a significant year for the disability community because it is the 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. There's the election and there's also the census. You know, I knew it would be daunting taking this position, the expectation, but also like the the real honor and privilege it is to be a part of this organization in 2020. One of the things that I love the most about AAPD is that we are a cross disability organization. So we're not focused on a specific disability experience and there's a lot of value in organizations that's focus, you know, very exclusively on multiple sclerosis or deafness. Um, and there's real value in that kind of intercommunity work, but our movement is strongest when we can all work together. I know that maybe sounds trite, but when we talk about the disability community being 61 million people strong in the United States, that's everybody. And sometimes um, doing the, that kind of cross disability work is really tricky. Not everyone agrees. Sometimes there are, I like to call them access conflicts. Um, a really good example of this are the bumps on the sidewalk at an intersection, right? They're there to provide a tactile cue to someone who's blind that the sidewalk is ending and the street is beginning, right? For someone like me who has really bad balance, I have to like gear up to approach the bumps and not fall over. You can imagine what that kind of negotiation looks like from an advocacy perspective or a policy perspective. That's what I get to do every day. And I get to listen to what the community is experiencing across the country. I get to hear frustrations and celebration and it's it's amazing. And then I believe the stat is that more than a third of LGBTQ adults have a disability. That's right. Can you help us like make sense of like why that number might be different than like, the general population? So I, I think that there's a variety of reasons that that stat exists. The LGBT community also experiences higher rates of poverty and disability and poverty go hand in hand. Disability is both a cause and consequence of poverty. You know, with poverty, you have less access to healthcare and food, which creates disability. That's what it, poverty creates disability. But when you are disabled, you often are forced into poverty because our systems require you to be poor in order to get access to healthcare or benefits that you need to survive. That's one part of it. The, the other part, I think that a lot of people with disabilities uh, understand that like our, our bodies, our minds may not operate in a kind of standard way. So why does love? Why does connection? Why do relationships? Oh, that's so fascinating because you're saying people in the disability community are less tied to like historical gender and sexuality norms that so many people subscribe to. I can't point to like research on that, but I, I think that is part of it. I really do. And I think everyone craves human connection and people with disabilities are often denied that. I also think that many disabled 
relationships can be very queer, whether it is, uh, uh, even if it is a kind of standard heterosexual couple. To me, it's also really baffling um, just how inaccessible so many LGBTQ spaces are because the disability community is so strongly represented within the queer community. And as we said earlier, when we say LGBTQ spaces, we're not just talking about the bars, not just the places of the alcohol. Right. Wow. I think that's a really amazing place to leave it at. Thank you so much for talking to us. You're welcome. Thank you for the invitation. All right. And that's our show. You can find out more about Maria and her work on Twitter at Maria underscore M underscore town. I'm also on Twitter at JeffMasters1. That is a great way to stay connected and recommend guests. We love hearing from you each week. Also, there's been a ton of new ratings and comments lately for the podcast on iTunes. One of our producers told me to read a comment on the show, but that just feels a bit too self-gratuitous, you know? So I'll just say this. Thank you. Thank you so much. And that really is a big, big help in helping us continue to grow. So keep it up. This podcast is brought to you by The Advocate Magazine in partnership with GLAAD. Come check out all of our amazing work at advocate.com and glad.org. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and I'll see you next week. Bye.